The reading for today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. God's word speaks to us. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word to us. Good morning. It's good to see y'all. Happy New Year. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and we are jumping this morning, as, as you could tell from the scripture reading, back into Mark. So we were in this book for, uh, I think, 28 weeks, and then we took a break to celebrate and, and lean into the season of Advent and Christmas, and, uh, and so we're back in today. So as we continue to enter into this book as normal, as usual, I want to pray for y'all, invite you to pray for me, and then we'll... Uh, take a look at Mark together once again. So let's pray for and with each other. Father, we come to you and we we have things that we need and we have full confidence that you know everything we need before we ask, but you're a good father, so we still ask. We ask for presence in this moment, that we would be able to be rooted and have open hearts and lives for your truth I pray for help to serve my friends like Jesus so clearly serves us in this book. Be able to point to you, Jesus, and and help each of our hearts. And we thank you that, Spirit of God, you're in this room. And if we're in Christ, you're in us. And you're helping us understand the beauty and the wonder of the truth of the gospel and the word of God. So in that assurance, we... We rest and ask for help. And for my friends in this room that are just exploring Christianity and who you are, Jesus, I pray that you would meet them and bless them and reveal truth to them this morning. We pray, Jesus, all this in your name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. So my aim and my hope this morning is like a little bit different. Um, And so what I would like to do is in one part a little bit like um, a previously on moment at a television show, meaning like back in the day before we watched television all in one season, all in one night. Um, there were moments where you would come back to a show you were watching and they would help you out at the beginning and, and give you like a reminder and a recap and a review previously on Lost, you know? None of us know what's happening in the show, but we're going to tell you, you know, what, what happened last week. And so my hope in one part is that today would serve a little bit like a, like a previously on moment where we're able to kind of look back at the gospel of Mark, where we've been, whether you've been with us on that journey or not, and just give a bit of a recap and a reminder. That's one of my hopes, but in kind of like a deeper way, um, kind of put it in context, my wedding anniversary with Anna, who's somewhere in here, um, was, uh, was Friday, right? And so we've been married 17 years this Friday. Thank you. And uh, I, I, full disclosure, told our kids, like in boldness and confidence, right before we walked out the door for our date, your mom and dad have been married 16 years today. And Anna was like, 17 years. And so... I tried to come up with something like clever and romantic, like, baby, time just doesn't seem long enough when I'm with you. Nothing came to me, and I just, 
I had to apologize. Like, I'm sorry. Math is hard. But uh, I, I, I am bringing that up intentionally because an anniversary is a celebration. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder, though, and it's also a reflection. And what I would hope to do in this moment, in some ways, is that it would feel like that in the sense that we're able to reflect upon, hey, we've, we've kind of committed together as a church to be in the Gospel of Mark here on Sundays for, you know, in totality, like 44 weeks. And there, there are reasons we've done that. And as we're even a bit past the halfway mark, it's good to stop and just reflect and remember, celebrate, but, but just remember the why. Like Anna and I were able to do on Sunday, remember that we covenanted before God about a marriage to be one, to love one another in Christ. We're, we're going to be reminded and reflect today, my, own, my aim and my hope, as to, to why we... Um, we're in this season led to be in this book. And it would remind our hearts and, and we could almost recommit with one another to continue to journey through this gospel together. And so as we do, I just have like three questions I want to hold before us that we're going to work through this morning. And the first is this, like, hey, what have we learned so far as we've studied the gospel of Mark? I want us to look back. The second question I have is, hey, where are we headed as we look forward these three months that we're going to spend in these next five chapters? Uh, what, what do we need to be expectant to see? And then lastly, just I would frame it this way, like some pastoral hopes and assurances that we ought to and can together hold on to together as we continue to work through this book. And so perhaps if, if um, you would like like an in-depth reintroduction to Mark or if you're new to the church in the last several months, I want to invite you to maybe go back to our website. There's a, a sermon that kicked off the series where we do like a, a really in-depth intro. That might be helpful. That's not what today is going to be. It's just going to be those three questions. Looking back, looking ahead, and, and hopes and assurances I'm inviting us to hold on to. So one, what have we learned so far? The first half, really, chapters 1 through 8 of Mark, Mark, John Mark is writing to answer a question, the all-important question of who is Jesus? The opening line of the Gospel of Mark reads, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark just comes out the gate, line 1, with the truth of the identity of who Jesus is and what the Gospel of Mark is about. It's good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then especially over the next eight chapters, what he does is he tells us the history, the story of the life and ministry of Jesus in a way that that, that identity of Jesus as the Christ, the promised King and Savior, the Son of God, that that's reinforced. It's confirmed. And Mark just dives right in to the life and the ministry of Jesus as, as an adult man. Not like Matthew or Luke. There's no Christmas story in birth narrative. Not like the Gospel of John, where John even brings us into the wonder of the pre-existence of the Son of God. But Mark just dives right into the action. And in page one, we're told about Jesus' preparation for ministry. We're told about John the Baptist, who's preparing a way. He's the forerunner to prepare hearts for Jesus. We're told about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where he goes toe-to-toe with Satan and in the midst of the greatest degree of temptation a man has ever faced, Jesus overcomes, empowered by the Spirit. 
Before we can even catch our breath, Jesus launches into his ministry and he's proclaiming the arrival of a kingdom and he's going to town to town to preach. He's healing the sick. He's defeating powers of darkness. There's this word that comes up throughout Mark again and again and it's the the Greek word ethos. It means immediately. It appears like 40 times in the book of Mark and that just gives us insight as to when we're reading Mark and studying it correctly, how it feels have y'all ever been in a car with somebody who drives just a little bit too fast? If no one's coming to mind, you are that person. Right? <laughs> Anna and I took a trip with my friend. He's a pastor out in Shawnee, a frontline named Ben Hill. And we went to this uh, pastor's conference of a network we're a part of. And it was just Ben and Anna and I. And uh, long story short, we waited longer in line to get the rental car than we did tr- flying to Denver. It was just an extraordinary amount of time waiting this summer for that rental car. And so to be really kind, they just gave us like an amazing upgrade. And I don't even know what kind of car it was. It like was a transformer. It turned into a, it was so nice. It had, you know, there are things up on the windshield and it would buzz your rear if there was a car next to you. It was, I was blown away. And Ben took full advantage of that car and drove so fast, just inappropriately fast everywhere. And I was just, you know, you grab onto something like that makes a difference. Like you, you have some sense of control, right? It's just, and that's so opposite of me. I drive slow, not because I'm like, like holy and obey this. It's just my disposition. You know, Anna's always like, you, you can go 10 miles faster than you're going right now, man. You're such a grandma. No offense to the grandmas. But Ben, it, I bring that up because Ben in that moment, you know, like that his driving is a little bit like how Mark feels. It's like we're going somewhere and we're going quickly and it feels even like a bit dangerous and it's action-packed and exciting. And, and in that action and in that activity and in that speed, one of the things again and again and again, especially and particularly the first half of the book that John Mark, empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit, is communicating to us is, is the authority of Jesus. As we're looking back and looking at where we've been so far, and we're, we're remembering that the first half of Mark presents us with a question, who is Jesus? That the first half of the book can be summarized and answered with that one word. It's authority. Everything Jesus does, he does with authority. Who is Jesus? Mark gives us the answer. He, he is a man of all and ultimate authority. He is king. I mean, the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark is in, in Mark 1.15, and, and his first words recorded in this Gospel read, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So what we're going to see Jesus do consistently throughout this book is proclaim a kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God has arrived and and it's easy to overlook, but if we slow down and actually just marinate and, and, and look at that statement, like it is a statement that is made out of incredible authority. Jesus is saying, hey, a kingdom is here because I'm a king who's arrived and that kingdom of God is shorthand for, hey, the restoration of all things. That creation was made to be under the rule of God, but humanity rebelled and ran from the creator, the maker, the author of life himself. And I am here as king to restore all things. That is a striking claim of authority. 
And then we see this unfold, this authority of the King Jesus as this book continues. Early on, we see Jesus just call people to follow him. And they do it. (laughs) Men just lay down successful small businesses at his word to follow him. Because he's a man who's walking in real authority. He teaches people. And what are they amazed by? Mark 1, chapter 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. One of my favorite attributes of the book of Mark is that we see just from chapter 1, from page 1, and throughout the entire book, Jesus is just so scary to powers of darkness that they quake and they're fearful and they're terrified in the presence of this carpenter from Nazareth because he is the son of God who has all authority over powers of darkness. There's this moment in Mark chapter 5 where a man is demon-possessed with such a quantity of, of demons that he identifies himself as legion. And yet, In the presence of Jesus, when he steps off a boat onto a shore, that this horde of demons are freaking out in fear because Jesus is on the scene. He has authority over darkness. In Mark chapter 2, we see this amazing moment where Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He heals a man after forgiving him of his sins. And Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's like a, there, there are religious elite Pharisees there that are offended because they don't understand who Jesus is. Because, like, what gives you the right? Like, if, if Jeremy and I are in a fight, right, and we're arguing, and I come up and I punch Jeremy, right? And then, and then Matt comes up and he's like, David, I forgive you. Jeremy would be like, what the heck, man? Like, <laughs> you're not involved in this, right? You know? But... If Jesus comes in and he's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the king of all creation. I made both of you. You belong to me. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive because he's come to, to pay the price for our sins on the cross. We see that Christ has authority over creation, right? There's this moment in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus is asleep in a boat and there's a storm raging that's so scary. These seasoned sailors think they're going to die and Jesus speaks to the storm and calms the storm and the disciples respond in fear and their question is, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're stopped in their tracks by the authority of Jesus. Authority to take a few loaves of bread and a few fish and, and multiply it to feed thousands. The authority to walk on water. That wasn't just like a parlor trick, right? He's communicating uh, something about his identity, that the seas belong to him. He made them. They obey him. We see him heal a woman who no one was able to heal, who been struck by an ailment for 12 years and just the touch of the hem of his garment heals her. He, he takes a little girl by the hand in Mark chapter 5, lifts, lifts her up out of death back into life. He has authority over disease and death. And all of the, the opening eight chapters of Mark, the first half, are 
building and, and driving into us as studiers of the gospel of Mark that this is not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the living son of God, the savior of the world. And he has all authority. And as we begin to see that in deeper ways, as we read through Mark, we see that we're walking along the disciples with the disciples and, and they begin to see that. Remember again, the first half is about the question, who is Jesus? And it kind of climaxes the summit of the first half of the book. It, it summits upon that question where Jesus is hanging out with his disciples in, in Mark chapter 8 and he asks them, hey, who do people say that I am? And they answer, well, some say you're John the Baptist and, and some say you're Elijah and others just say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at his disciples in the eye and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter who's the primary source of this book. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. That means the anointed one, the king, the promised savior of the world. One way of saying, you're a man who has all authority. By God's grace, Peter had been impacted and it had been revealed to him by the power of the Holy Spirit who Jesus is. And what struck me like on a personal level and even for us as a congregation this week in light of reflecting on the first half of Mark is I, I will include this. I'll include myself in this that at times um, people, specifically pastors, speaking about Jesus can say things that probably are unhelpful. Specifically this, um, Hey, I've made Jesus my king. Or will you make Jesus the Lord of your life when we're talking about faith? But that's incorrect. Because we can't make Jesus anything. We can recognize the reality of who Jesus is. And what Mark is doing, a, a, a powerful and profound job communicating to us in truth is that Jesus is king. He has all authority, full stop. He is our maker, our creator, our savior. That means that our life belongs to him. Our marriage is under his authority. Our, our families, our parenting, our children, they're under his authority. Our money is under his authority. Our time, our bodies, our tongues, and the things that we say, our mouths are under the reign of this king. Our sexuality, our friendships. We can be here all day talking about all the things they are under the authority of Jesus because he is king of, king of kings, Lord of lords, and he is the son of God with all authority. So when we're looking at where we found ourselves studying the book thus far, we find ourselves in a moment where we can reflect upon and stand under the truth that Jesus has authority in our lives in this world, in the entire universe. That's who he is. He's the Messiah. And so that brings us to our second question is, well, where are we headed? And it's helpful in this moment to look again at Peter's revelation and confession about who Jesus is because that's where the book hinges. That's where part one ends in a real way and part two begins. There's this unexpected shift that occurs because 
With all his authority, Jesus is a king, but he's a different type of king that we would imagine and the disciples have ever imagined. And we see it in what Jesus says next. Verse 31 of Mark 8, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, if you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter is right that Jesus is is the Christ, the Messiah. He has all authority. He's the Savior of the world. And yet he's wrong because he believes all those things, but he has his expectations and and his dreams and his will that he's laying on Jesus. He knows the type of king he wants Jesus to be, and Jesus immediately begins to reveal the truth, which is greater and deeper and richer and better news than Peter could ever imagine, but Peter doesn't get it right away. And so he begins to try to correct the man with all authority and say, hey, you're wrong about a few things. This is not how this is going to play out. This is not good news. You dying rising again, which he doesn't even have a frame for, right? But Jesus patiently and graciously to Peter and to all his followers is is going to take time to again and again tell them, hey, yeah, I have all authority. I I am king, and I'm going to do with my authority and my power something absolutely necessary for you to have life, but something that you don't quite get. He's going to say it again in chapter 9. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after three days he will rise. And again in chapter 10, it's just chapter after chapter, Jesus is trying to help them see what he's come to do with all of his authority. He says, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to chief priests and teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and hand him over to Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus is in great detail prophetically proclaiming what he's going to do with his authority. He's going to lay it down. That's really the the heart of the book. There's this moment in the book where all the disciples are arguing about authority and power and which of them has the most And Jesus pulls him aside and he says this in chapter 10, beginning in verse 42. This verse that captures the very heart of the gospel of Mark. Jesus called them together and said, You know know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is clearly saying, I am king. I am great. But the the reality and the definition of greatness that that I am here to walk out is very different. It's subversive. It's disruptive to your idea of greatness and authority. I am king. That's who I am. What have I come to do? I've come to serve. In the second half of Mark, we see 
Jesus living this out. That's where we find ourselves on, on the map of the journey of Mark that before Christmas when we were in Mark, we saw Jesus entering into Jerusalem to fulfill prophecy of the Old Testament. He entered in not on a, a stallion, not on a chariot, but on a donkey. He came lowly, postured to serve. And up to this point, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, we've looked at about two and a half, three years of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And at this point, we're going to spend the next three months and the next five chapters looking at one week in the life of Jesus, the most important week in the history of the world. And what we're going to see happen in the life and the ministry of Jesus this week first, which, which I love, is that we're going to see him come to be dis, dis, subversive and disruptive. We're going to see him come in a real way to come pick a fight. Like a fighter taking the center of the ring, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's there to fight for truth, fight for what's right in the lives of people who are experiencing oppression and heartache. We're going to see him go to the temple and drive out moneylenders who are taking advantage of the poor. We're going to see him argue with and confront oppressive, religiously abusive leaders who are graceless. We're going to see him do this in full knowledge that it's going to cost him his life. And what we're going to see is heartbreak. We're going to see him betrayed by a man he loved like a brother. We're going to see him abandoned by nearly all of his friends. We're going to see him go through physical pain that's unimaginable. As Pilate, in fear of a crowd, gives him over to torture and execution on a cross. And we're going to see him suspended hanging there. Rejected by men as if we're trying to send him back to where he came from. And yet forsaken by God because on that cross he's paying the price for our sins. And in his, in his suspension on that cross, just in and of itself, we would view that as a tragedy. But remember, Jesus has said all along, this is where I'm going and I'm going there because it's my plan, it's the Father's plan that I'm perfectly following. And so his suspension there on that cross is not a tragedy, it's our victory. Because in that suspension between heaven and earth, he's the lifeline between heaven and earth. He's the rock that joins us. He's the bridge that is by faith there to bring us back to life with God. And we see, to vindicate this, that Mark ends with the resurrection. It ends with an empty tomb, just like Jesus promised again and again. These are the final verses of the book of Mark. It says, don't be alarmed. This is an a angel described as a young man dressed in white that's found at the tomb by some women coming to visit the body of Jesus. And the message is, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of the, uh, the Nazarene who's crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's gone ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him just as he told you. 
And Mark ends by describing the reaction that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anybody because they were afraid. And then, really, that's where Mark ends. It's like quite the mic drop moment. Like, I love the other Gospels because they have these resurrection appearances that are so precious to the church. They're precious to me. I love that when I struggle with doubt, that Luke tells us about doubting Thomas, who gets to move towards Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and and put his hands in his side and see the wounds. I love that Peter, who denied Jesus three times at the end of John, gets to sit with the resurrected Lord for breakfast and eat fish and, and be restored. And yet, I love the way that John Mark ends his gospel too so abruptly because in its abrupt ending, he does that in purpose, on purpose because we have to do something with it. That Jesus, who had all authority, who came with a mission to serve, did exactly what he said he would do. He laid his life down and he rose again. And that's the end of the gospel. And now we hold that. And the invitation, the charge, the demand is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to flee in fear? Are we going to stand in faith? So finally, that leads us to my final question. Just pastorally, hey, what are hopes and assurances we can hold on to together? As we continue to journey forward for these next three months up to Easter in Mark, just from, from my heart as I've been praying for all of us over the last few weeks, what are some things that we can hold on to together and hopes that we, we can have? And the first is this. Studying Mark will help us know our king. So you think the danger that we face, that I face, that we all face, is similar to what we saw in the life of Peter and, and the other disciples. They were up against it in the first century. We're up against it here in Edmond in 2021 too. And that danger is that through the misreading of Scripture, or, or probably more accurately not bothering the study of Scripture altogether, or, or just through the brokenness of our own heart, what we can do is we try to make Jesus in our own image. We would like to create an imaginary Jesus who always agrees with us, that holds the same opinions that we hold about everything, that affirms every desire that we can ever have. And what's so precious about the Gospel of Mark is that it gives us the true, accurate, compelling, and beautiful version of who Jesus really is and who He truly is today risen alive on his throne. That we would see him and we would be conformed into his image and not try to conform him into ours. And I can't think of, frankly, at this moment in the church, anything that any of us need more than that. The second thing that I have for for a hope and assurance for us is that we would just grow in grace. Out the gate, Mark chapter 114 says that Jesus came for the forgiveness of sins. And we see just people far from God in every story and every moment that Jesus and his love and his compassion, he sees and he moves toward. That the whole message of Mark is that although we've run and turned our back from God, that God is running after us and is willing to, the Son of God, willing to experience the pain of having everyone turn his back on him that we may know the forgiveness of sins. 
So my prayer is that each of us are struck in a new way for our own life and for those that we love as we continue to read this book together, that there is no one who is outside of the reach of the grace of God. That's our story if we're in Christ, and that's what we're called to reflect to one another. As Paul wrote to the church in Colossians chapter 3, 13, what does it look like to be a community under the authority of Jesus? Well, that we would bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So I think we can have an assurance that as we stay in Mark, we're going to grow in grace, celebrating the grace that we've received and extending the grace that's ours in Christ. Mark helps us prepare for pain and rejection. You know, as we study Mark, we, we find firm ground to stand on as we experience pain in life. And a careful reading of Mark, you'll see that one of the themes is people facing rejection and shame and pain and Christ moving towards them in that moment again and again. People on the outside, tax collectors, people that are considered sinners or shamed by the religious elite. People in need like the blind man Bartimaeus are, are belittled and shunned by crowds. We see Jesus' own family reject him in moments in this book. We see faithful men who've been walking in righteousness like John the Baptist. For, for all their faithfulness and righteousness, they experience murder and martyrdom. Jesus is going to promise his followers the pain of rejection and heartache in the coming chapters. And Jesus obviously himself, in a way that no one in history will ever experience, will experience pain and heartache, and shame, and rejection in Mark. And all that communicates the truth to us that following Jesus doesn't mean we're ever promised we won't experience hardship, but it means that whatever hardship we do experience, Christ is working in, and he's with us in the midst of it. <laughs> Y'all remember at the beginning of 2021 when we were like, man, thank God 2020 is over. This is going to be a better year. And maybe in some ways it was. In some ways, maybe it was a little worse, right? And here, I mean, I don't think it's bad, but I find myself again at 22 being like, thank you, Jesus, 2021 is over, and I'm really looking forward to an easier year, you know? But maybe for all of us, or certainly some of us, 2022 is going to be particularly difficult. But the truth that we are reminded of in the Gospel of Mark, is that we are not alone in that hardship that Christ is with us by the power of God the Spirit. And then lastly, and probably um, the thing that hit me hardest this last week as I was praying for each of us, was this. The hope and assurance that as we continue in this book, I think we all ought to be expectant to see others and for us ourselves to receive restoration to receive restoration. Like, one of the beautiful things that Mark tells us isn't that just Jesus came to forgive sins, but he came to bring about restoration. It's what the kingdom is all about. Jesus is, is saying, hey, ultimately, everywhere, your own soul and creation itself, I am coming to restore. And so when we see all these miracles in Mark, right? 
They're there to communicate something to us, and, and primarily they're there to communicate the very heart of God. Dane Ortland, who, who wrote a study of Mark, he puts it this way. It was really helpful. He said, we tend to think of the miracles in Mark and the other Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. However, Jesus' miracles were not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. See, we are so used to a fallen world that sickness and disease and pain and death seem natural. But in fact, they are the interruption. And Jesus' miracles normalize people. It's the truth of the kingdom and the heart of God that we would know restoration in Christ Jesus. And so just to get real practical, I mean, this is my sense from the Spirit, best I can tell. But you know, usually as a pastor at the beginning of the year, I feel like I, I want to share something with you. And sometimes I was just like, I don't know, there's another year coming, you know? And as I was praying for us, and, uh, I, you know, it's just, it's press on is the word. But I really did feel that as I was praying for us, that, that, that there's an invitation from the Spirit of God that for us collectively, but for many of us in this room individually, that God would like us to receive in new and deep and powerful ways his restoring healing power this year. Like maybe for some of us in this room, there are sins that have been committed against us long ago and we've been carrying those wounds for a long time. And to know shame that is on you, just part of your story has been that pain And perhaps God's heart in this season is deep down those wounds that have never healed. He wants to heal. There's relationships that seem beyond repair. And maybe just maybe what Jesus wants to do this year is to bring about real restoration where it's impossible apart from him, but there's nothing that's impossible for him. So that might look different for many of us, but, but I think the thing that I struggle with is when it comes to maybe other people that I'm in a relationship with, I have great faith for Jesus to do things, but for whatever reason, probably pride, when I look at my own life, I might not have that faith for real restoration. Or we as a church can look at a city like Mumbai where we're planting a church and believe great things in revival. And yet, when we look at the day-in, day-out reality of our lives, we don't have that same expectancy and faith. And, and I feel, lastly, that one of the things I want us to hold on to and pray for and be expectant about in our own lives and as a church is real restoration that we see clearly is the heart of God in the Gospel of Mark. Let's stand and pray. Our prayer, Father, is the prayer simply that Jesus taught us. As we look at this church, this year, our lives moving forward, we pray as Christ taught us, and we pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for the reality that we have a king who has all authority.
We thank you for the truth that that king came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as our ransom. I pray for my friends that are just here who've never put their faith in Jesus, who've never recognized Christ as king. The Spirit of God, you would help open their eyes and open their hearts to the truth of how much God loves them. We thank you for your faithfulness, Jesus. We thank you for your authority. We thank you for your service. We thank you for your life given that we may have life. We thank you that you rose so that we can rise in you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Together we say, amen.